Social inequalities are responsible for the loss of millions of ideas and inventions over hundreds of years. Recently dubbed the Lost Einstein's Effect, the loss over time is measurable today in a decline in innovation, slowing economic growth, and repercussions on all sectors, from technology to healthcare. The gender gap among inventors affects what gets invented and consequently who benefits from innovation. Desotel Faculty of Management Professor John Paul Ferguson investigates the question of whether members of specific social groups may be more likely to patent inventions targeted towards their own group's needs and interests. He and his colleagues at Harvard Business School and the Universidad de Navarra in Barcelona share their findings in a research paper titled, Who Do We Invent For? Patents by Women Focus More on Women's Health, But Few Women Get to Invent, published in the journal Science. Using an algorithmic tool to examine U.S. biomedical patents filed from 1976 to 2010, the researchers found that although fewer women engage in commercial patenting compared with men, their discoveries and related patents are more likely to focus on women's health. While representation in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and medicine has increased in recent years, the inventor gap is made clear by this research that when women engage less in patenting and invention, what gets invented is affected. Welcome to the Delve Podcast. Delve is the award-winning thought leadership platform of McGill University's Desotel Faculty of Management. You can find Delve at delve.mcgill.ca and most podcasting apps. For this episode of the Delve Podcast, I'm your host, Robin Fadden. In this episode of the Delve Podcast, I talk with Professor Ferguson about his research, and we bring the first-hand experiences of two professionals who recently patented inventions in the field of healthcare. Dr. Lucy Gilbert is a surgeon, McGill professor, and the director of gynecologic oncology, and the director of the Women's Health Research Unit at McGill University and McGill University Health Center. She is the founder of the Dove Clinics in Montreal, which stands for Diagnosing Ovarian and Endometrial Cancers Early. And she and her team have developed a new genetic pap test called the Dove Gene Test for detecting gynecologic cancers very early before they even cause the symptoms that indicate a serious threat to life. Our other guest, Negan Ashuri, is an engineer, computer scientist, and young biomedical entrepreneur who offers another perspective on the issue of women and biomedical inventions. She is chief executive officer and co-founder of Fem Therapeutics, a company that applies artificial intelligence to the field of medicine in her team's recent investment created to meet an unmet need in gynecologic medicine, a 3D-printed pessary device which processes measurements by a doctor to design a pessary with the optimal fit. She recently received the prestigious Mitax Change Agent Entrepreneur Award for her and her team's work. In talking about how patents are developed and for what purposes, all three guests speak to the need for ongoing and stronger efforts to achieve social equality in science, technology, engineering, and medicine. We look at where and how that change is happening today and what can be done to further support invention-based entrepreneurship by women, specifically in healthcare, that has the potential to change not only women's lives, but to change what gets invented and by whom in the near future. Since John Paul Ferguson's research is the main inquiry that we're exploring today, I'd like to start with him. Can you tell us about what sparked this research? The big question that started it was, how much does who invents matter for what gets invented? And that I think is um, just to give a little bit of background as to why that's an interesting question, other than the obvious that hopefully it sounds interesting. There is a lot of work in recent years, particularly among economists, um, trying to understand how things like social segregation and discrimination affect innovation in a society. 
you know, the, the classic version of this that you will hear is people will say, well, Rome would never industrialize because it could rely on slave labor. Um, or in a more modern context, people will discuss that certain types of innovations, for example, in things like sewage and sanitation are less likely if you have a caste system where the people who are closest to that work and think about it don't necessarily have access to the uh, social capital, financial capital, or otherwise to actually invent. And uh, there's been quite good work on that in terms of what's sometimes referred to as the lost Einstein problem. But a related question, of course, is, well, who specifically is being excluded? And what specifically does that imply for the type of inventions that we might see? And that's a fiendishly hard question to get traction on, because it's one of those social science issues that we all basically think is true. But trying to demonstrate it in an empirical way is quite hard, partly because how do you decide, like, how would you even map someone's position in society to the type of inventions that are likely to come up? Part of the idea of focusing on men and women in biomedical research was that as complicated an issue as it is to address compared to something like social class, race, or otherwise in various fields, this one felt more straightforward, which is by no means to imply that it is straightforward, but in a relative sense, um, we thought we could gain some traction by looking at this particular area. Thinking about who has been excluded and how to find that kind of information, could you tell us what particular data you analyzed to conduct this study? The original idea was to focus on biomedical inventions. And part of the reasoning here is that there's really good data on patents that have been granted. If it became important, there's also good data on patents that have been applied for, um, whether or not they have been granted. And a tremendous amount of work has been done by people over the last, let's say, five to 10 years to give us better identifying information on the inventors themselves. At the very least, we've gotten good at making very high quality assessments of gender from the name information on patents. The other key thing that was important here is to take advantage of a machine learning algorithm that has been developed by the National Library of Medicine. So for many decades, um, the National Library of Medicine hires people to read and tag uh, research articles that are published that have some sort of medical impact. And the idea here is that if I'm a physician, for example, and I'm trying to find recent work on cirrhosis of the liver, for example, um, that by searching those tags, I can find recent publications. In recent years to scale that kind of work, the National Library of Medicine decided to create an algorithm that makes predictive tagging of medical texts. The main innovation in the paper was to say, well, can we use the same algorithm and feed it the title, the abstract, the early body of patents and get similar quality tagging, which would allow us to look at the universe of patents in a way that was not possible a few years ago. And so the, the bulk of the research data come from the USPTO, that's the Patent and Trademark Office, data set, which basically has every patent from 1976 going forward. For various reasons, we use all class C patents, which are biomedical patents uh, between 1976 and 2010. We, we drop off in 2010 because we want to make sure we have enough years after it's been granted to make sure that we have the whole population because of the way that the USPTO phases uh, patent data into the file. 
And then the bulk of the sort of back end of the paper was validating whether or not using the medical text indexer, which is the name of the uh, machine learning algorithm that the library had created, would it work well on patent data for doing the same kinds of classifications? Good news, yes. Uh, so the paper was possible. Just before we start talking with Dr. Lucy Gilbert and Negan Ashuri about their processes of invention, which comes at a time in history that could be argued is more supportive of women inventors, women's health, and funding women's entrepreneurship, could we hear more about what the research data reveal about the social history of biomedical invention and women's place in it? One way to think about this paper is we're trying to understand where progress had come from. And I think that's important for us to understand because the idea that there is a systematic ignoring of or exclusion of women from biomedical research and invention, that there are biases, for example, in the granting rate of patents. This has all been pretty well documented by prior research. But we also know that the level of said exclusion or discrimination has changed over recent decades. Things are by no means perfect. We're not yet close to 50% men and women inventing, but the share of inventions by female inventors has gone up quite a lot since the late 1970s. And the share of biomedical inventions that target diseases or conditions that disproportionately affect women has also gone up, such that in a few recent years, there have been more inventions specifically targeting women than inventions specifically targeting men. It's only a couple of years over the bulk of the years that we look at, it's definitely the case that there have been far more inventions that target diseases and conditions that men suffer from. Also to be clear, most biomedical inventions don't have a sex focus in the same way. So what we're usually talking about is about one in eight inventions target conditions or diseases that mostly affect women, about one in eight mostly affect men, three quarters are basically sex neutral. And so the big question we had was how much of that increase in the focus of invention could you explain due to the increase in female inventors? Because of course, the, the counter argument could be that this relationship is spurious, that we have a shift in focus where male researchers are more likely to focus on women's issues as well as men's. And that same shift in focus also makes, for example, male researchers more likely to admit and tolerate women within the field. And then you'd have these two things going up at the same time, but they're not necessarily attributable one to the other. That is not the case, as might not surprise uh, a lot of people listening. At best, we could say a bit less than half of that increase might be due to the changing uh, focus and priorities of male inventors, but more than half of that growth, because we're estimating direct models of conditional on the uh, sex composition of the invention team, what's the probability that this invention gets tagged as affecting diseases or conditions? that uh, mostly affect women by the MTI, more than half of that shift. I mean, you just have to attribute to an increased presence of female researchers and inventors. You mentioned common counterarguments to research findings on sex and gender disparity. To what extent did you address these counterarguments in your research? The paper also looks one stage upstream because a common question you get asked is, well, is there just a differing propensity, for example, of men and women to invent? And it might be, for example, that you have more women who are coming up with research ideas, but are less likely to commercialize them than male researchers might be. So we also decided to look at shift in the focus of the research articles that all patents in biomedicine cite over that period, 
for what it's worth, you find exactly the same patterns. More female researchers lead to more articles that are focusing on diseases and conditions that affect women. So we don't just think this is some question about the sexes have different propensities to patent, for example. It's heartening to hear that your data back that up, adding to other data that show the same findings. Now to shift from data to the patent holders themselves, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lucy Gilbert to the Delve podcast. Your career is focused on women's health. How did you identify the gaps in women's health patents that led to your invention of the genetic pap test Dove gene? Because as John Paul has alluded to, and I'm sure you've experienced, these gaps definitely exist. To be truthful, it didn't take detective work or intelligence because this problem just tears at you. The fact that women die of these cancers, the cure rates haven't changed for ages. Nobody, you have to be insensitive not to see it. So the cure rates for ovarian cancer, the high-grade serous ovarian cancer, the high-grade serous endometrial cancer are as it was when I started medicine. It's an obsession with me because if you don't address this, it, it would be negligent. So that's not subtle. It's not nuanced, nothing. It's a big problem. So I started not with an invention. I thought just applying ordinary principles of medical practice, access and things like that would, would solve the problem. So in 2008, I started the Dubby Clinics, which is uh, starting clinics that were free, uh, fast track, didn't need a referral because we think very traditionally, oh, this is because there aren't enough GPs, there are not enough gynecologists, uh, women don't know about this problem. So you address fundamental uh, little steps to make it easier. So we started a clinics all over Greater Montreal, positioned them in places which had older population, less mobile, francophone, all the things that we thought would create results and found that it shifted. We published it in Lancet Oncology and our finding was that it shifted the proportion of people diagnosed in unresectable stage three and four, but did not increase the proportion of women diagnosed in stage one and two of these cancers. What I'd like to emphasize about the, most of the solid cancers is if you find a cancer when it's confined to an organ, by removing the, your organ, your chances of curing are substantially higher. But once the cancer goes and sticks onto the large bowel, small bowel, uh, liver, spleen, diaphragm, then you are lost. And that is how patients come to us. That's how patients were coming to us when I started my medical career in the early 80s. And that's how patients come to us now. And this is what was getting at my soul. It just made you feel so important. So we set up these clinics and we thought we're going to make a great deal of difference in 2008 and found that it didn't. That's when you knew using what is available already won't cut it. 
you have to invent. I don't want to speak for too many uh, women or medics. By nature, there's so much to be done that we don't want to put half our brain aside to invent. You know, you just want to get things right, which can be got right. But now I knew, no, you have to come up with something new and different. I took my cue from cervix cancer. In the 60s, cervical cancer was the second highest killer of Canadian women. And now it's 16th. In the whole of Canada, 420 women die of cervical cancer. And that number dies in Montreal from ovarian and endometrial cancer. So And why did we make this huge leap in cervical cancer? By early detection. Then you knew you have to do early detection. And we knew that our traditional thing, your blood tumor markers, uh, imaging, which we were trying and uh, looking at it from this angle, is not going to make a difference. You have to come up with something totally new, totally different. And so that PAP test, worked for cervical cancer, but it won't work for this cancer because it requires identifying a cancer cell in a slide. While this cancer spreads like icing sugar, when the tumor is so tiny, that's when you needed to use an upstream. I'm going to borrow from JP's thing. You needed to go upstream. The very beginning of cancer, which is cancers are genetically driven. A mutation driven. So early in the process of cancer, you, we looked at the mutations that were implicated in ovarian and endometrial cancer and looked for this mutation in a pap test, as opposed to looking for a proper cancer cell in a pap test. So that is what where the DAV gene study came from. And it stands for DAV is detecting ovarian and endometrial cancer early using genomics. Dr. Gilbert's experience today and over time, well a sample of one, illustrates Professor Ferguson's findings, including the fact that today more women are inventing and that they're patenting tests, devices, and other inventions for women's health. We're going to bring in the voice of young entrepreneur Negan Ashuri now, who just a few years ago took part in a surgical innovation program run by McGill, Concordia, and ETS universities here in Montreal. That program was designed to bring together people with business, technology, and medical backgrounds. Negan's team investigated gynecology, looking at surgeons' unmet needs in the hospital environment, from emergency rooms to operating rooms to clinics. Negan, what was the experience in this program that sparked you to found Fem Therapeutics and embark on the process of becoming an inventor and patent holder? How we found Fem Therapeutics, actually, it was really interesting. So I came here in Canada in uh, March 2018, and my study started in September 2018. So we were seeing if surgeons need something that they don't have, if we can find something that can help patients. And surprisingly, in the field that we were, gynecology, uh, it was surprisingly, the technology there was surprisingly underdeveloped. And we literally saw how surgeons are using tools and the technology isn't developed that much compared to other fields of surgery. We were seeing in the operating rooms that um, lots of people, lots of women come for a surgery, uh, which is called hysterectomy, to remove their uterus, or they are coming for reconstructive surgery. So they have prolapse. So we sat with our clinical supervisor. He explained to us that 
this is the condition. So it's very common. One in every 10 women around the world will have this condition. The non-invasive solution is a pessary, but they also fail in 40% of the time. So women just discontinue using them. Thanks for talking about how you linked your technical problem-solving perspective to what surgeons and gynecologists, not to mention what women, were experiencing in a clinical setting. Dr. Gilbert, I'm very interested in how you described your clinical experience overlapping with your invention process, that they both needed to be there to understand what was needed to achieve the goal of bringing the rate of these cancers down. If you'd been working only in a lab, you might not have come up with this early detection test. I started this work with Bert Vogelstein, who's a very uh, well-known scientist at Johns Hopkins. And we were able to branch off and progress and progress at a phenomenal rate. Only I don't have Bert's intelligence. I don't have his money. I don't have his network. I don't have his... Because I'm a clinician. Because every day, uh, you that's what you see from in your ward, in your operating room, in your clinics. But second most important thing is the people of Montreal are phenomenal. They just take part in research. So I know that when we started, we had so many hospital, uh, big centers in the U.S., you know, MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, you know, huge centers together. And we contributed the most patients because women want an end to this. For example, in the U.S., they'll fly into these big centers and then they go off. So you don't have the follow-up. You don't have that interest here. There's a community that thinks, Enough is enough, and we are going to make a difference, which is why we can do this without, as I said, a fraction of the resources. And it's because I'm a clinician, because I understand the disease, because I can see it in a lab, and then I'm inside the abdomen because I'm a surgeon. So the marrying of this is crucially important. And the patients feel we've looked after them, so they want to look after us. And if I could expand on that point, because uh, something, Lucy, that you said at the beginning, I completely agree with, which is we always have this moment where it's like, this doesn't take detective work. And then you, you find yourself asking, well, why is it that we have to go to so much trouble in these articles then? And it's worth pointing out, if I can draw a parallel, a couple of years ago, we published a paper looking at segregation by race in employment between workplaces in the United States. And what we found is that it's actually been growing over the last generation, not declining as a lot of people thought. It's the sort of fact that seems counterintuitive when I presented in academia, because everyone in academia looks around at their workplaces, which were in America, overwhelmingly white uh, a few decades ago and are noticeably more diverse now. And you want to point out to people, your lived experience isn't wrong here, but it doesn't generalize. That is the definition of segregation, that the labor force as a whole, for example, has diversified at a rate much greater than many organizations have. And so even though you see more, for example, female or non-white workers in your workplace, that doesn't mean that the average person's experience has been one of greater diversity. I mention it because the question of like, it doesn't take detective work is how often are we making these arguments? Uh, I hate to say it this way, but like, you know, to people like me, which is to say, you know, we often joke like white men don't see social structure. 
And the reason we don't see it is that social structure is designed to support us and get out of our way. So trying to demonstrate to someone the importance of a social division that they haven't had to think about much in their life is often why we find ourselves spending so long on the sort of statistical sleuthing to say, no, that that explanation you just came up with, which does not require you to revise your worldview, doesn't actually hold up. But also, uh, per the point you made, Lucy, at the, right at the start there, it doesn't take detective work. And yet having a piece of detective work published in what's considered a leading journal to say, no, actually, this is not just my experience. It's been found elsewhere. And you can't just ignore it as anecdotal. I hope that's a contribution. That's a good segue into what the challenges and barriers were that Dr. Gilbert found in inventing and patenting the Dove gene early detection tests. There's a huge chasm between an invention and then getting it out because in i'm sure all pat- this applies to all patterns but in me- i can only speak about medicine it's not having the idea it's not seeing that it works in a lab it's not seeing in a tiny self-selected population it is when put out into the public will it cause more harm that it's always more harm than good. It it requires so much of uh, resources and funds. Unfortunately, women struggle to get access to funds. This is everybody, all scientists, you you go to a cafeteria and three people come together and everybody's moaning about access to funds. But the likelihood of women and it's not so much grants. Grants are awful to get to. But for certain funds, you do need philanthropy and you need investors. So I often have my, I have no ego because I just want it done. I just want to have it done before I die. I, I'm happy to send men in my place to make the case because funds, who has the money? White men have more money than others. Is that true? Do you have a scientific article on that? It's true. And until it changes, you can feel free having a go white men. We can console ourselves with all the cash. Go on. (laughs) So you need access to that cash. And they just do not take women seriously. You have to just keep at it. These are structures. And I liked your sentence, JP. You said uh, the uh, social structures, you you don't even notice some of these things that support men and make it easier. We notice it when it's not available. I'd like to bring Negan into the conversation again. Negan, you started on this path of biomedical entrepreneurship through a master's program that gave you access to practitioners. Then you won in the Dobson Cup competition at McGill University, providing you with recognition and a lead to funding that validated your idea. That's a serious leg up in the world of biomedical innovation, which tends to require significant funding for research and development. Now you're part of Incubator Santec, focused on funding new medical technologies. You've had a great start in your entrepreneurship journey, but what challenges have you experienced bringing your invention to fruition? 
lots and lots of challenges since we founded the company. I personally really wanted to be an entrepreneur from like a young age. I, I guess I decided to do this when I was 20 years old. When I saw that there is really a problem that we can actually solve, I really wanted to dedicate myself on this. The first challenge was that not all of us thought that way and people had other uh, priorities in their lives. Right now, we are four people along with our clinical supervisor. So that was the first challenge. But, you know, patents are not really easy to file because they, they should be general enough and specific enough. On the same time, you have to be specific enough so you distinguish your idea from others. In my experience, also, we have faced lots of challenges in terms of being a woman in this space. Although there are lots of initiatives for women uh, to encourage them, lots of people are from the previous generation of startups and venture capitalists. And how they see you, even if they say that they're okay, they, they believe in you and they, they think you can do this. At the end of the day, you can see that that's not going to happen. Professor Ferguson, you looked at so much data for your research, hearing these firsthand experiences behind the process of invention and acquiring patents. How do you view personal experience in your inquiry? I feel like it's my job to take the personal experience and depersonalize it. I mean, I'm a statistician. Welcome to my world. So there's a paradox I run into a lot in this kind of research. I'm going to give a shout out to one of the great American social scientists, the comedian Chris Rock, who has a bit where he was discussing um, desegregation in baseball in the United States, where he said, you know, people often say that Jackie Robinson desegregated baseball in 1947, when in fact, you could probably argue that baseball wasn't desegregated in the United States until the 1960s and maybe even until the 1970s. And the indication of that is it's only at that late date that you start to see bad black baseball players, which is to say, you know that there isn't much of a barrier to getting into baseball when you can have an embarrassingly bad African-American player, because previously you had to be amazing to even be considered. And I bring it up because it shows up all over the place that people treat the high performance or the extra institutional incentives that have been put out for a particular group as a sign that that group faces no hostility. And it's just bizarre because so I know when this article was published, there were people on Reddit pointing out uh, just a hair defensively about how welcoming STEM is to women and how many scholarships there are for undergraduate majors who are women and who want to major in STEM fields and so on. And you want to point out when you have to have specific scholarships, that's often a sign that the group is underrepresented. We don't give special scholarships to groups that are there in large numbers. That's expensive. Um, We use those to increase diversity from a group we haven't seen enough of. One of the early tests we did was to look at what this effect that we were finding of female inventors was across different patent categories. And in particular, we compared pharmaceuticals to surgical instruments, because what you tend to find if you look is that the share of female inventors has gone up in pharmaceuticals, whereas it's remained almost flat since the late 1970s in surgical instruments. What you find is that the sort of female inventor effect which is to say the relative increase in the probability that the patent in question targets diseases or conditions uh, that affect women has gone down over time in pharmaceuticals. 
and it has been large and stayed large in surgical instruments. And the argument we make in the back material of the paper, because there has been a shift where pharmaceuticals have been more welcoming to women researchers over recent decades, you also find that male inventors are more likely to look at issues that affect women. And so the difference between the sexes has tended to go down in pharmaceuticals, but it's, it's really telling that in surgical instruments, the inventor share has stayed relatively low and the female effect um, has stayed relatively large. With the female inventor effect in mind, did your goals ever change in the process of your experience developing and patenting the Dove gene test? Did you run into anything that made you need to alter your goals? I think I have a, a psychiatric problem that once I get fixated on something, it stays. And because the reason for this invention was to reduce suffering and save lives. That goal hasn't changed. So no matter what has been thrown at me by way of uh, difficulties, and I've been advised to change tack a little to make something more possible, I haven't. My goal, I started literally with the end. The end had to be, there should be a test that's available to all women, regardless of ability to pay. And it should have a high false detection rate and very low false positive, because you don't want to be doing unnecessary surgeries. So this was sacrosanct. And if this is sacrosanct, all the problems that come up, we didn't change because right in the beginning, which is why we parted ways with my US colleagues is because we want it reimbursed. And to have it reimbursed, it has to be below the magical number of $500. That was not a priority for some other groups. So if you start with those basic principles, the goal hasn't changed. There are steps, extra steps that are coming on because of this, but that goal is it. You have to have a test. It has to be universally available. It has not to be so expensive because there's no point having a super duper test that is available to a fraction of women. Again, that speaks to the systems and structures that are in place already and that you have to work within. And it sounds like you have to fight pretty hard and and work with the right people to achieve your goals. What do you think needs to change for more women to become biomedical inventors and patent holders? I think it is, uh, JP alluded to this, to say to some kind of positive discrimination. Of course, it that gets people's backs up because you think you want the best invention, you want the best people, but it's not a level playing field. And if it's not a level playing field, there must be some kind of help given to people who are struggling. Because I like in JP's article, he said uh, the number of curies who are lost or, you know, you are losing people and you have evidence which you quoted the references. The moment you remove discrimination, the whole society benefits. 
So sometimes you'll get it wrong by, uh, you know, but then I think it's a small price space. When it comes to investors, that is the huge, huge, huge gap, really. How can one set up something that is women-friendly would make a difference? I know so many colleagues in sciences who can't get any help for the invention. So I'm, I'm the lucky one. Let me talk about this a little bit from a, just a research perspective as well. There is a long tradition of research looking at both sides of this in the sense of who becomes a STEM researcher, but also who gets patented. And I can, if I may toot the horn of my own group within Desotel, um, within the organizational behavior group, for example, my colleague Brian Rubino has been part of multiple studies trying to look at the pipeline through universities and so on for STEM graduates and where women are lost in that pipeline and why. Because we often find at the level of declaring majors and so on, there's a gender gap, but it's small. And by the time we get all the way through, of course, we see a heavily biased field. Um, that bias has shrunk in recent years, but of course, it's still large. We have a sense that we think that diversity of researchers and inventors is, among other things, important for the researchers and inventors themselves, because we do not want to close life and career opportunities off to people because of the accidents of their birth. And I perhaps obviously endorse that view. And yet the question of what is the larger impact of the pool of researchers or inventors uh, is something that's very hard for us to look at. For what it's worth, one of the reasons why people don't tend to look at that is when you're trying to study the likelihood of a patent being granted or someone graduating and staying in a field, you do everything you can to control for everything except their sex. And in those cases, by definition, you have people who are researching and inventing the same ideas. And so the minute you want to ask, what does, for example, the sex of the researcher and inventor do to the idea you have to take an entirely different approach to the data because it's precisely that thing that people have been matching on that you want to study. And it's important to make the argument that what gets invented needs to be focused on as well, because otherwise you can be in a situation where you say, look, it would be nice for those women if they have those opportunities, but as a society, we are left the same because these things would be invented anyway. And so, so much of our work has been just to try to say, no, there's a, there's a societal effect, completely independent of the careers and opportunities of the people involved that you have to pay attention to. And so often when the question becomes, what are your recommendations? You know, our recommendations are the same as many of our colleagues in the sense that like, this isn't something you solve at the level of what people choose to study or research. It comes at the level of what opportunities do they have to become researchers, to become inventors and to have those granted. We're kind of you know, running back up in interference for our colleagues and saying that this is another sign of why these things are so important. And so often these are things that are solved through educational policy. They're solved through um, paying close attention to if we see bias at the patent office and so on. It's very much going to the next level of saying we need more representation. We need beyond that. Representation is only step one. So my final question to all of you in light of this research and what we've talked about today is what makes you optimistic about the future of biomedical innovation and what will be invented in the future? 
progress does not guarantee progress. Again, a lot of my previous work is on how employment desegregation has moved backwards in certain ways in the US. So like, I'm not someone who believes in the upward, like the automatic upward march of history. Let's put it that way. Um, whenever you are, I mean, I am more encouraged by social protest around these issues generally than I am by observed trends within the specific fields which is to say, because those trends are easier to reverse if there isn't broader social change. And then I'm more encouraged at the level of, I would care about more like university admission statistics and graduation rates. And then I would look at things like publication rates for research articles. And only then would I start to feel more cautiously optimistic about invention rates. Now, for what it's worth, we have seen uh, the graduation rates of women in STEM fields increasing in recent years. We have seen their contributions in terms of published research articles have grown uh, over the decades, and we have seen the invention rate increasing. And so I have grounds for optimism in the sense of whatever has led to those increases, if it continues, that's a good thing. Again, we are left with the question, and this is one of the things that we couldn't cover with the data that we have, is how impactful are those inventions by women inventors relative to those by male inventors? My suspicion, based on what we talked about earlier, is that on average, they're probably more impactful. That's that black baseball player effect again. As long as I kept seeing that like the, the observed inventions by women are a lot more impactful than the observed inventions by men, I would suggest per that earlier example, like we still have progress to make. I actually don't think that men are better than women or that women are better than men at invention. I think we're probably about the same on these measures. And so until we start seeing outcomes that look pretty similar, like that's often the sign that we're really starting to reach parity in important ways. I'm going to speak about sample size of one. I am optimistic simply from how impossible it was when I started. It was a no-no. The, the sensitive women fell off. People like me who really size nine feet, uh, just willing to be at it, you know, really, really not that super sensitive, stayed on. Now there's room for all kinds of women gradually. And the, one example I'll give you for the first time in the history of Megill, the chief of surgeon in chief is a woman. When I became a surgeon, a gynecologist, 0.2% of women were allowed to be surgeons. We could be anesthetists, we could be geriatricians, but not. So now to have a woman surgeon in chief and a woman who has four children. It's not, not papers. It's not hard data. It's just looking around and you're not as lonely. That is the key. You went before to a meeting and I was dreadfully lonely, just so different in terms of color, accent, uh, voice, expression, and sex. And now I am very optimistic. I, I am, really. And Negan, you reached out to key opinion leaders, gynecologists all around North America recently for feedback on your invention. Did their responses encourage you not only in your own work, but in how you look at the future of biomedical invention in women's health? They are very eager to have new technology in their field. 
implemented. So they are uh, really looking for new invention in this, and they are ready to change because, you know, the integration is uh, would not be easy for everyone, especially for the surgeons. You know, but in this field, in, in the women health, in my experience, I saw lots of positive feedbacks from them. And, and I saw that they are really ready for new invention and integrate to it easily. So I guess that the future of women health is very, very uh, promising. Whether we're looking at research like Professor John Paul Ferguson's that analyzes a massive amount of social and historical data, or we're hearing firsthand experiences of biomedical inventors today like Dr. Lucy Gilbert and Negan Ashuri, stepping into the next level of inquiry around the impacts of inequalities is vital to making broader change happen. The problems that inventions such as Dr. Gilbert's Dove gene test and Negan Ashuri's customizable pessary seek to solve may be specific in their use and to whom they are useful for, but the impact of these inventions and their inventors within biomedicine is linked directly to broader social and cultural change, from women's changing roles in the labor market to the inclusion of previously overlooked change-making inventors and their inventions. You can hear and read more insights into recent research at the Desotel Faculty of Management on delve.mcgill.ca. And you can subscribe to the Delve Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcasting apps. Thank you for listening to the Delve Podcast.